0: Of party one, one, right
1: when we're not flying, the best thing to do is to fill in the gap with other things like reading, the glider flying handbook, I'll learn about weather patterns, study maps, like I've started studying maps recently, just, you know, anything that I can do to retain the information. So when I'm there with the instructor, <laughs> then I know what I'm doing.
2: Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 77. We will be joining our guest pilots soon, but first, a big thank you for continuing to support the podcast. We greatly appreciate it. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button. Take a couple minutes and leave us some feedback on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. It does help get the word out and helps build the soaring community Also share the podcast with your fellow glider pilots at the Glider Port and let them know about Soaring the Sky. I do also want to thank those of you that continue to financially support the podcast. If you would like to help us out you can do that by going on to patreon.com slash soaringthesky or you can log on to soaringthesky.com and click on the support the show. While you are there you can also sign up for our newsletter that we will be talking about that is coming very soon. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its eighth grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. I'm excited to bring you this episode. It is packed full of great guests and great soaring content. We'll be checking in on some of our previous guests and find out what they have been up to and what they are doing at their club. Wendy Carson, a school teacher, blogger, yoga instructor, and glider pilot from New Mexico, will chat with us about her future plans and what we can learn about ground school and what she has found helpful from a teacher's point of view. Later on the show, author and glider pilot, Dale Masters. Excited about this one. He is joining us for our brand new segment, Soaring Tales with Dale. Then for our Soaring Tips and Techniques segment, Marcus Volter pilot and fellow podcaster from southern Germany will join us and explain the benefits of water ballast. For our soaring safety segment, John Bacard is going to join us from England to explain the importance of scanning the skies while we fly. Our final guest, final but not least, is Chris Snyder from Merlin Soaring near Richmond, Virginia. We're going to catch up with him, find out what he's doing. He's going to talk to us about soaring in wave, flying cross country, and all-important glider maintenance. All this right now on Soaring the Sky. Wendy Carson, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to have you.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be on again.
2: It has been a while. You know, I was looking back and I said, wow, has it really been episode 17? Is it the last time we talked? But I guess it was.
1: Yeah. What was that? About a year ago, maybe? I think longer.
2: Yeah, I think a little longer than a year. Yeah.
1: Wow. That's nuts.
2: It is. So how have you been?
1: I've actually been really good. I've been working out every single day. So I do some sort of physical activity every day. And that's been going well. Reading, studying, still in school, a perpetual student.
2: All that takes some discipline.
1: It does. It all takes discipline.
2: I I find if I guess if you get into a habit, that helps, right?
1: Yeah. So that was the one thing. So now when I don't work out during the day, or even just go for a walk, I feel like something's missing. It's like, oh, what did I forget today? Oh, yeah, you didn't do your, right. your little workouts. So I actually really like it because it's transitioned to me into discipline into other areas of my life.
2: Yeah, I can see that. And mentally, you feel better too.
1: Oh, yeah, a lot, a lot better.
2: Now, I know I'm sure you've done a little bit of flying since we talked, but i had seen you actually did some flying in another club in another part of the country. So I kind of wanted to ask you about that.
1: Yeah. So I also fly at the Tampa Bay Soaring Club in Tampa, Florida. Um, I fly with my kid's grandfather, who is my ex-father-in-law, but I still call him dad. You know how it goes. We fly together. He doesn't instruct me. But um, I get to fly with him a lot. And then there's also instructors that do fly there because you know how it is. They're there all day. If they could be most, most of the people are retired. Some are not. But yeah, they fly with me. So I always, always bring my book because I never know who's going to be there when we show up.
2: Nice. So how is it like flying in a different part of the country?
1: You know it's interesting at Tampa Bay because there's also a flight school right next door, like they all use the same um landing uh runway, so there's a <laughs> they uh what is that there's there's the sail plane where you have the individual i think we talked about this before, and then there's also the um the guys that jump out of the airplane what do you call those crazies the crazies that just wanna jump out. Yeah. out? <laughs> skydivers, skydivers yeah.
2: paratroopers, skydivers,
1: yeah, skydivers. So there's that skydiving school anyway. Um, yeah. So there's that. So we, and then also the airspace, we can't really go in certain places. So, so that's also interesting. So before I go up, I always like to study the ground and the airspace and just kind of like remind myself, okay, well, I can't fly in this area, but I can fly in this area. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I would definitely. It sounds like a busy airport, a lot of stuff going on.
1: Oh, yeah, it's definitely a busy airport.
2: It, it always makes me nervous when jumpers are in, are in the area. I know they're extra safe, too, but it's just <laughs> it's one of those things.
1: They're nuts, those jumpers.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's something yeah. I would never want to do. It's like I can get in a glider and fly a glider, but I don't think I'd want to jump out of an airplane.
2: I think I want to experience it once, although I know it's not going to be easy. But, yeah, maybe one time.
1: One time, yeah. If you go with someone, I think that would be good.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah, flying in Tampa, it's, it's nice. The view's different.
2: Oh, yeah. It's always nice to see different parts, different parts of the country from the air. I was in California this past spring, early spring, before it got too crazy. And it, it was definitely a very unique experience flying in an area that I've, that's nothing like where I fly now. So earlier we were talking about, well, the last time we talked, which was episode 17, we had talked about ground school and it's super important and it's huge. And we all love to fly, but we don't always love the books. I've always had a tough time with the books. But as a teacher, can you give us any tips on studying things that you found helped your students out?
1: Well, the thing with studying is it's different for everyone because we're all different learners. So you you get this a lot in teaching. It's like, okay, you're either a math person or you're an English person. Um, if you're lucky, you're both, but not everybody's both. So studying for flight is actually, it's the same thing. Not a lot of people like to read. And if they do read, it kind of goes one in one um, thought process and out, out the door, and then you don't remember it. So some of the things that I suggest to, let's say, for my own students is I produce just different methods of learning, like video, audio, um, you know, outside of reading, Uh, hands on. Like, for example, a pilot friend of mine, she suggested that I get a, a training simulator. So that's on its way. I'm very excited about that. Because for me, I'm more of a hands-on learner. So when I'm up in the glider, it's like, ooh, this feels so natural. But, you know, there's more to just getting in the glider and flying. You actually have to study. So so what I do is I like to take parts of my day, similar to working out every day. You just discipline yourself. Okay, so today I'm going to read maybe 30 minutes of the flight manual so i can pass my written exam right because that's that's where i'm at right now is doing the written exam and then you just study that and sometimes you have to do it over and over and over it it's more of a repetitive process so right for someone that doesn't like to read um you know i like the videos but a lot of the videos on youtube uh some of them are helpful uh, who's that one? I think it's called Knopf. What's his name? Tom Knopf? Tom Knopf. Yeah, that's
2: right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. His Tom book, I would suggest called Glider Basics from First Flight to Solo. It's a very easy read. It's funny. I mean, he tells it like it is. Um, so for a new student, I would suggest doing something like that. It's entertaining, you know, uh, you kind of get past that whole, oh, no, I have to study for this or that, you know, right. but you do.
2: And everyone does learn differently, like you were saying. So what works for someone may not work for someone else.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
2: And then same way when it comes to instructors. That's why a lot of times they tell you, if you can and if it's possible, if an instructor's not working, it's not working. It's it's not it's nothing against them, nothing against you. You all just aren't clicking. Sometimes if you do get the other instructor, things start clicking better and it starts happening much faster.
1: Yeah, exactly, and that was one of the things that this this pilot friend had told me as well. She said, "You know what, Wendy? This is your money. You know, if you don't feel comfortable with a flight instructor, switch out flight instructors. This is your experience, your money, your lesson." And I thought, you know, even flying at a club, it's so true. You it it's it's uh, you really have to go with someone that you're comfortable with. Uh, I think the last time I flew the instructor told me, which is really, I can't believe he said this, but he's like, he said, I don't think you're cut out for aviation. And I, and I told him, I says, well, well, I don't agree with you. I think you're wrong. So yeah. So like you were saying, you just change instructors. He's not the instructor for me. He doesn't have patience. Um, You know, he's not willing to stick it out. He's, I think, and also too, I know we've talked about this before, but a lot of instructors are used to young kids coming in that retain information a lot quicker and can, you know, speed out that whole lesson and it'd be fine. But people like you and I that have jobs and families and a life that we have to live outside of flying. And so even though flying's our passion, it's not the, the main thing on our list to do. Exactly. You know, yep. it's, it's so... When we're not flying, the best thing to do is to fill in the gap with other things, like reading the glider flying handbook. It doesn't matter what year it's from. It's a great, great read. Uh, Learn about weather patterns. Study maps. Like I've started studying maps recently. Just, you know, anything that I can do to retain the information. So when I'm there with the instructor... (laughs) (laughs) then i know what i'm doing you know and i don't get that at the tampa bay soaring club that's another thing that i enjoy about flying there and it just depends like um the club in new mexico it's an amazing club the guys there are great they're like second and third dads to me so they're they're amazing you get to know these people you know their lives you, you hang out with them you go to functions and well before covid of course but um, it's like a family you bond. So really you just kind of have to find your tribe and see what fits for you. Yeah. I will say this though. If you're serious about becoming a a glider pilot, I would not suggest, I know I did before, but I wouldn't suggest now going through a club. I think that if you're going to do it, you're going to spend about the same amount of money and less time actually um, just going to a flight school.
2: You're definitely going to spend less time because they're, they're just going to hit it hard probably several days in a row. And just there's some guys I talked to that did weekends at a commercial outfit, you know, school, you know, they had flown some before, but they hadn't soloed yet. So by the end of the weekend, they had soloed and they were good to go back to their club and finish the, their training. So it works out really well.
1: Yeah, I agree. So Absolutely. And that's what the club is good for. The club is good for consistent flying, you know, if you have already gotten the skills under your belt.
2: Yeah. And even if you've, you're a solo student now, when you go back to your club after you have soloed at the school, you can, you know, continue to fly and you'll fly more often, of course, because now that you're solo, you can jump in and go, you know?
1: Yeah. And that's another thing with the club is that there's not always instructors ready, readily available, i know they'd like to be because it, they love it but they're not always available and yeah it's good to be a part of a club i think it's definitely worth worth the investment but also if you're gonna fly my suggestion is go to a school <laughs> go to a flight school
2: yeah get it done and then go back to your club and enjoy the club
1: yeah absolutely and then enjoy the club for what the club is meant for recreational love of flight
2: absolutely Well, before we go, um, I I definitely appreciate you being on the podcast again, but I did want to ask you about some of your projects. You have a blog now, correct?
1: I do. I have a blog and I'm starting a podcast as well.
2: Yes. And you're starting a podcast. I talked to you about that briefly. So I I was excited about that because it's kind of my passion, but (laughs) I'm looking forward to you launching that and hearing more about it. Now we do have a a better website now. A, A lot of work was done on it. Thanks to some friends in California. They've helped me out with that. But the reason I mentioned that was because I'm putting links there. So I'll put put some links for you to your blog and then when you get the podcast going. But So if you go onto the website, there's a pilot page and you can click on you, Wendy Carson. And someone's interested in your blog, they can click on that and go to your blog. Same way with your podcast, all that. So it's kind of a thank you from me to you for being on the show and helping each other out.
1: I really appreciate that. I'm really looking forward to doing this this podcast. I think it's going to be fun. My blog is called The Girlfriend's Guide to Forty, <laughs> so basically, it's just me and a bunch of friends. Not all women, but just me and a and a bunch of friends that sit and talk about, you know, what it's like dating in your forties. Uh, I mean, how the heck are we supposed to know what this is about? So we talk to each other about it, and we're very open. And very honest, so it's it's kind of funny <laughs> and humorous a lot of the time. Which you know you have to kind of tackle life and pretty much anything with an open mind, open heart, humor. You know, it's kind of the way you just got to do stuff. So yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's a it's a it's a fun blog and it's and it's a fun podcast. So I'm really excited about it. And that would be that would be really cool. So thank you, Chuck, for doing that.
2: You're welcome. Well, thank you, Wendy. It's been great chat with you again. We'll have to have you on. Maybe we won't, we won't wait so long next time. Like I said, it was episode 17 and we're getting ready to launch 76. And by by the time you, everyone hears this, we will have launched it. But yeah, it's been great catching up with you. Wish you the best with the blog and the podcast. And we'll be keeping an eye on that.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. I always enjoy chatting with you. Fly, fly, fly till we die, right?
2: <laughs> That's right.
1: Yeah, there you go. I love it.
2: Thank you again, Wendy. And now for a brand new segment of the podcast, Soaring Tales with Dale. Each episode, we are going to feature a brand new soaring story from author and glider pilot, Dale Masters. Dale is the author of the book, Soaring Beyond the Basics. Dale's story for this episode is called Snappy Comeback.
0: I had a girlfriend who was... Uh at that time running the office at our glider port, and was a student. And she had just gotten her license. So we had flown together a great deal recently, including all the prep stuff for the check ride. And it's a lot of aborted flights, a lot of short flights, and only a, a few recent soaring flights because she was getting ready for a license. And then it just happened to be the very first flight she took with her fresh new rating. And she went up in a single-seater, the baby grove. And I launched her and didn't think much about it. I just I saw the two planes leave, and I walked inside to log that takeoff on the computer. And when I finished that, I looked up, and there she was on the runway, pointed the other direction, out of the cockpit, pumping her fist like Kirk Gibson when he hit his home run in the World Series, pumping his fists as he went around the bases. She was out there pumping her fists, and she'd been in the air for maybe two or three minutes. And so I ran back out to see, well, first of all, why she was back so quick, and also find out why she was so happy with herself. But what she had done was, she took off, and in that direction, you cross an orchard, and then you cross about a half mile of boulders, which is a, a dry creek bed. And all that time, they were in sync, towing out, just leaving the airport. And then they came out of that sync, and she hit the lift and got excited and released. And then she realized, well, you know, it's a couple miles from the airport is about 500 feet. And it's all synced back to the airport. And it's unlandable. You got the boulder field and then the orchard. And she realized she was hung out. But we had done quite a bit of soaring prior to that. And I had emphasized my, I used my emphasis on uh, porpoising, on going fast in sync and slow in lift. And she realized she was probably going to crash if she didn't just, you know, get lucky with that. So she did it. She very aggressively dove through the sink. And then when she hit a patch of lift, she'd pull up in it. And she was close to the trees before she pulled up over the power line and got it onto the runway and had enough energy to coast halfway up and stop in front of the office. So that's why she was so self-congratulatory. And it was probably the shortest flight anybody's ever had that they celebrated.
2: Thank you, Dale. Looking forward to another soaring tale on our next episode. Now for our soaring tips and techniques segment, as Marcus Volter explains flying with water ballast. Marcus is a glider pilot and podcaster. We will put a link to his show about science and engineering in the show notes.
3: Basically, to fly as far as possible for a given weather window, let's say thermal day from 10 to 7 p.m. let's say nine hours. If you want to go further you have to go faster because the time is fixed basically and to go further you have to fly with a higher cross-country average speed. How do you get fast? Well basically two things you can do. You can climb in good thermals, so the time you spend with cross-country speed zero while you're climbing gets shorter. So you want to select the good thermals and you want to select a day where you have a lot of good thermals. The weather is out of your control, of course, but one way of getting fast is having a good feel of finding good thermals and not climbing in thermals that are not as good as the average could be. The other thing is you want to have an aircraft that, when you go straight, can go straight as fast as possible, and the way this works basically is that the best L over D is governed by shape, right? So a particular uh, wing cross-section and aircraft design gives you a particular particular glide performance. Now, what determines the speed at which the best glide performance is available to you, that is a matter of weight, basically, or wing loading. And basically the, the thing is that the heavier the aircraft gets, the higher the speed is at which the aircraft has its best glide performance. So when you load up an, an ASG 29 with 100 uh, liters of water or even more, then your the speed of best glide is 10 to 15 kilometers higher, meaning you can glide faster without paying a performance penalty. Now, that's great, but the drawback of course is that when you climb, you're not interested in your best glide ratio, you're interested in your best minimum sink. And the minimum sink rate increases if your aircraft gets heavier. So there is a trade-off between loading water, so you can go faster with the best glide ratio between the clouds, and not loading water because you climb faster in the thermals. And now McCready's theory basically tells us that the better the weather gets, the more important it is to go fast between the clouds as opposed to climbing in the clouds and so the better the weather you the the heavier the more water you load so you get better glide performance and you're kind of happily paying the price tag of decreased climb speed there's one more trade-off which is if you make your glider heavy the flight characteristics might get worse so it might become less agile, you know, around the long axis, or it might become a little bit more critical in terms of low-speed handling. And so, what the modern gliders, and I would inc- include the HG29, um, have achieved is that the handling characteristics don't get that much worse if you make the glider heavier. In fact, you can argue that the HG29 handles better if you have 80 or 100 liters. If you do even more, it becomes less convenient. Long story short, when the weather is good, you make the glider heavy so you can fly faster with the same performance. You climb less good, but you, that doesn't care. That doesn't matter. Straight if that works. And the flying characteristics, the handling characteristics stay good uh, in a large range of wing loadings.
2: Our soaring safety segment today, we're joined by John Bacard from England as he tells us the importance of keeping your eyes out of the cockpit.
0: So it's no good just having your
4: head on a swivel, as, as the old fighter pilot movies would show you and all that sort of stuff, you know. It's being precise and sectioning off which areas you're looking at and then coming back and going away, etc. And I found that to be really beneficial because at first I couldn't see anything. I wasn't picking anything up until I actually learned how to look in sections, and that's been
2: very good. Thank you, John. Also, we caught up with Chris Snyder from Merlin Soaring to find out what he's been up to. He flies near Richmond, Virginia. We talked to him about soaring in wave, cross-country flying, and glider maintenance. Chris Snyder, welcome back to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you again. I think it was episode five uh, as the first time we spoke. How are you?
4: Hey, Chuck, doing well. Thanks. It's great to be back.
2: Great. What has been going on down in Merlin Soaring?
4: Well, I tell you what. Our our club has been growing. Our our cross-country flights have been going. You know, I I will say that the pandemic has been a very difficult time uh, in many ways, but in one way, it it has really, I think, kind of focused people's attention. And we we are at the point where we have to be careful about adding new members that we have capacity. So I'll say that, you know, we've had some really, really good days of flying, you know, know, we're trying to be safe, but but it's been some of our best flying, I think, that we've ever had as a club.
2: That is some great news something tough you turned it into a good thing and it sounds like you guys have grown
4: yeah we have you know everyone's being much more careful these days when our instructors are flying they're flying you know with masks and, and we're taking precautions with these with cockpits but you know everyone's kind of learning to live with this this new normal and uh and i, I think everyone just really appreciates being together you know especially as it's one of the few outlets that I, I have where I get to see my friends on a regular basis. So I, I really treasure our our little, you know, flying club, our little uh, private airport that we fly out of in central Virginia, you know, flat land that it is. However, you know, some of the things that we've been doing, we've, we've been getting some really good flights and our, our pilots, including myself, have been venturing out to the mountains.
2: You've been doing some cross country, you said.
4: Yeah, you know, ever since I I heard, you know, one of the um, Soaring Society had been putting on those webinars, and Sebastian Kawa, I think it was, said, you know, I waited too long to go cross-country. I'm just always, like, just whipping myself, like, go, you gotta go. Sebastian said go, and so I've been trying to stretch out. Just a few weeks ago, we had just beautiful cloud streets, and, you know, you see some of those favorite YouTube videos of all time, you see probably on YouTube, they're just running straight. And I finally, I was I was calling to my buddies on the ground. I'm like, guys, I'm going 80 knots straight. I can't even stay out of the clouds. Like, this is so good. Get up here. Nice. And sure enough, you know, I ran that cloud street. And I felt bold because my, my fellow DG pilot, uh, Pete Appleby, was he had already run that street and made it out a good 40 miles. And he's like, oh, come on out. The mountains are great. And I'm just running and running, and I think I turned like three times or something. Like literally, not even like thermal three times. Like, like circled three separate 360 degree circles. Wow. And you know, I, I finally hear another radio from him. He's like, uh, "You might want to stop at Appomattox because I'm having trouble." And uh, he was he was getting low out in the mountains, and we didn't have really good you know landout options that way. So I kind of spotted a thermal for him, um, and uh, it it ended up you know, we had to really kind of tiptoe home is it's amazing how those cloud streets, you know, they'll fly you in one direction, but I guess you can't guarantee they're going to be there when you turn around, you know, being the noob that I am, I'm still very new to this cross country, but I just pictured, Oh, I flew out in five knots the whole way. I'm sure that'll still be there 20 minutes from now. right? It was not. And unfortunately one of our, uh, one of our other, uh, guest pilots actually happened he's like you know hey what airport am I over you know he was kind of like disoriented a little bit I'm sure he knew where he was on the UDI but he ended up getting a little low out there and, and having to set it down so that was a big long retrieve but you know it's it's something that I think we had nine gliders which for I'm sure for many clubs it's no big deal but I can remember starting out at Merlin five six years ago there was like one glider
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
4: so to have so many in the air and have everybody kind of like, Hey, it's good up north. Or, hey, we're headed down to the lakes. You know, it's just to hear all that chatter on the radios is, is, has been um, very, very exciting, very exciting stuff.
2: That's awesome. So what have you done to grow your club? I know you said you've, you've had a lot of growth. What were the key factors do you think?
4: You know, one of the things as I'm the, the communications officer, so I'm always looking for that opportunity to snap a picture grab a video in flight or of, of a you know, student landing or whatnot. And then that's going right up on our Facebook page. So we, we try to get a weekly dose of soaring out into our community. And, and I feel like that's been something that has, has looked attractive to folks that are just coming out. You know, a lot of folks in the, in the power side, we're getting maybe a little traction on the word of mouth. You know, people are like, Hey, what's what's going on? There's always, you know, some buzz about, the the glider port out there and you know we've we've recently had a few airline pilots who have a lot of time on their hands right now yeah they're like yeah i'd I'd like to get my glider rating so so we've got add-on students coming but we've also got a lot of just ab initio from scratch students coming out and our our cfi team is is working non-stop you know i was just out at the field this afternoon on a um Wednesday afternoon with, with one of the young students, young man is, is 13 years old. He's he's really primed to be one of those solos on his 14th birthday pilots. And and that's just exciting to see, you know, we have a number of youth in our training program. And again, I think they're telling their friends. So it's, it's a bit of, you know, everyone's kind of doing their part, but again, we like to keep that, that fresh content, which also Feeds the stoke, you know. If, if I can bring a surfing analogy in to to our own members, and just keeps everybody kind of looking to that next cloud.
2: It's contagious, you know. When someone gets excited.
4: Oh, it really is. It really is. You know, we, we just celebrated a um, a big achievement. Our club president got in his uh, his, his nice new Ventus and uh, set off to the local, the other local club in Virginia that had. There's a, a trophy we call the boomerang trophy and, and so it's you know awarded to the, the the club that goes and picks it up basically <laughs> although it was kind of funny' it's, it's gotten so big they had to expand it it no longer fits in a glider so he was prepared to like actually <laughs> put it in the back seat but the, the the Rio in the bag was like I can't fit that back here with me <laughs> so they flew home without the trophy they had to go fetch it another day
2: but, Oh, my.
4: But, yeah, so we have, we have like, a nice little rivalry among our Virginia uh, soaring clubs. We hear them on the radio, so we're always kind of talking, you know, if, if someone's running the ridge maybe, or um, occasionally we're both we're, – more than one club will be up in Mountain Wave.
2: That's some good, healthy competition. It is.
4: It is. It's fun. And, and speaking of Mountain Wave, that was really eye-opening. I, I kind of – I didn't understand how some of our members just seem so locked into these – Blustery, cold winter days with, you know, Northwest winds and they get so excited. I was like, I I don't think I want, I don't want any part of that. Winds blowing 15 to 20 knots. It's like 30 degrees on the ground. I don't know, but I gave (laughs) it a try this year. And my goodness, when you're staring down at your home airfield from 13,000 feet, it was very, very addictive. Uh, Yeah, And uh, I think we connected, I personally connected with Wave about three separate times. Some of our more bold pilots were really starting to work that, you know, wave to wave because it's out where we are. It's becoming fairly reliable where, you know, you can can push up into that next wave and just kind of keep repeating that process. And you bump into that, you know, tumble through the rotor and then you bump into that next good bit of lift. You know, I, I remember remarking, you know, to one of the other parts, like, wait, my ground speed, you know, says I'm going like 90 knots. I'm like, but my airspeed only says like 70. He's like, it's because your true airspeed is, you know, a lot different when you're at 12,000
2: feet. Yeah, absolutely. I know with, with me doing some ridge soaring quite a few times, and then of course, lots of thermal soaring, I haven't gotten in wave yet. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that still haven't yet. What does wave feel like to you compared to some of the other ways of soaring?
4: You know, what we've found in our area is we find those days where it's this thermal to wave transition. And, you know, those thermals, they tend to be fairly turbulent, right? Pretty bumpy. Um, And then what happens is, Mm -hmm. you know, you get that feeling. You're like, wait, this thermal has all of a sudden gotten a lot smoother and I'm going to just fly straight, you know, on that angle, you kind of mentally compute in your head, all right, the wind's coming from over here. If I fly this angle, I'm probably, am going to track nicely along the front edge of a wave. And then that Vario, you find that sweet spot on the Vario and it just kicks up to like six knots all of a sudden in totally smooth wave. And now you're eyeball to eyeball with that cumulus you were just under, right? That's the thing where, you get up in front of those rotor clouds and you just, you're like, no, I, I, I'm not going to tell anybody. It might not be wave. I don't want to get their hopes up. And then sure enough, you're like over the cloud and you're like, Oh, I'm definitely in wave now. And you tell your buddies, Hey, this is uh, Romeo whiskey, 8,000 climbing through nine. You know, I'm going up at 10 knots. You might want to try this out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We actually kind of joked because we might need to negotiate a wave window. Our club president, once again, in, in his Ventus, was uh, he had to open the air brakes at 18,000. Oh, wow. Uh, right over our field. Now, I'm saying that tongue in cheek. I'm pretty sure Potomac is not going to open a wave window in the middle of a pretty busy flight corridor. So we'll probably be capped. But he computed there is a way to get your diamond. Uh, badge you know if, if you basically get off tow into lift open your air brakes go down a little bit you know and you're like you know you're going to pick back up as soon as you close your air brakes it's like you can get just enough altitude to clean your diamond and still be under the class A.
2: oh wow nice
4: so that's that's good that's my new challenge
2: so you were doing some glider maintenance and there's a funny story you had to share about a transponder check
4: well, you know, you would think there's not too much complexity to the gliders in terms of instrumentation. At least they don't appear to be. You know, I, I fly glass panel, you know, 182s and things like that. Those seem pretty complicated. But my my glider, it's got, you know, a Vario, mostly pedostatic. But I do have a transponder, thankfully, that the previous owner had installed. And it was due for its... its biennial check. And I take it to the local shop and he asks a very simple question. He's like, well, where's your antenna? And I'm like, well, I never thought about that. I, I don't know where it is. And so we're digging through what we can see underneath the panel and the see that doesn't really look like, well, there's some coax running here. but We couldn't really figure out where the transponder antenna was. And he was like, well, we'll check it. You know, I'll put it here. This should probably work. And he got it to pass like 19 out of the 20 checks. But that, that last check was enough that it was failing the, the one step. And he was like, I'm going to have to write it up as a fail. I'm like, Oh man, we're so close. And I said, what do you think if we tried the other side of the glider? And he's, he moves, he's like, all right, I'll, I'll give it one more try. And he's, he's able to see an instantaneous readout. Like this is a pretty complicated little piece of kit he has. And he's like, Oh wait, right here, right in this spot, I'm getting an instantaneous pass. Let me run the test, you know, logs it. Okay. Passes the test, shut it down. We're good. (laughs) So we, we kind of, you know, I I, I took a a note about, okay, this is where the, the thing was oriented. And we think we finally pieced together. My antennas behind my seat, but it's good to know your glider right you really you really want to know right where where some of these systems are when when uh, when you're we're handed the keys to your new glider
2: yeah <laughs> the
4: the other bit of maintenance that i'm almost i'm ashamed to say i had been i knew some of my gap seals were maybe just a little bit loose but you know they, they didn't seem like it was causing a problem but i uh, i finally made up my mind i was like well i've got it all apart this is a perfect time let me just Redo the gap seals on the elevator. Um, and I thought that I had always been asking, you know, my friend Pete, who's got the same glider. I'm like, is your glider really loud when we're flying along at 70 knots? He's like, not really. And I'm like, wow, mine sounds like like a trombone. Like it was just like makes this really loud sound. I've had people on the ground say, do you have an engine in that thing? And I'm pretty sure after, you know, replacing the seal, now it's like, wow. It's actually pretty quiet, and when when Pete pushes to eighty knots, I no longer fear that my, you know, something's vitally wrong with my glider. And so I doing between doing the gap seals on that and um, on the aileron, you know, everything is just really quieted down, and just honestly, it feels like a new ship to me. So it's you know, it's a bit
2: overdue. I I let it go a little too long. So can you tell me what you're flying?
4: Yeah, I have a DG two hundred which is a, a flapped uh, 15 meter. And um, it, they make a version with the winglets, which will bump up the, the glide performance a little bit. I, I think all of the gliders in this era will have a hard time keeping up with the more modern gliders is what I understand. But, but thankfully, you know, it, she's in really good shape. The gel coat's still in really good shape. is looking good. And, um, you know, the previous owner had, had really fitted it out nicely with oxygen so he could do his diamonds. So I have no excuses to not try for for these you know diamond badges, uh, and and now I'm starting to feel like you know maybe I could start to declare a 300k task. I think my longest task to date has been around two, and I shouldn't call it a task. I'm not quite task blind. I watch these guys declare these tasks, and it's it's very impressive. I'm still looking for oh that cloud over there looks like a good place to go. I'm still harvesting as many olc points as i
2: can well here in this part of the soaring world and you're not too far from me do you plan on using condor in the off season do you use it
4: i do i really do i i love the software and i was actually just talking to that 13 year old student and he's been using it uh, which kind of made me think about it again and i I really enjoyed those nightly races right when everything was shut down back in march and april uh, a few of the club members we all got together online, and we did the, the U.S. nightlies. And it's it's just a good, fun way to get, get your glider fix in the middle of the week and kind of, you know, try out the new sceneries are just, just beautiful. The Alps sceneries and out west, uh, very different from what we're used to flying. And we even had our club member uh, made a scenery for our area, which has been great. Our students can kind of practice on – on a facsimile of our own field. So yeah. Yeah. And actually, I remember you talking about how good the Oculus was. And uh, my son recently got an an Oculus connected up to his gaming rig. So if I can convince him to let me install Condor and I can tear him off of his PC for a few hours, I'll I'll definitely give that a go.
2: Uh, You'll have to do it. it. It puts you right in the cockpit. I mean, you're, you're sitting in the cockpit looking around and I was speaking of the Alps, I was flying the Alps a lot this past off season and it it's incredible i mean you're just gonna have to try it, it, it it's hard to explain but it literally puts you, yeah puts you in the glider oh i
4: will i know i know I, i've tried this vr a few times and it, it is so immersive you're right your brain just instantly says oh well, i guess we're flying now
2: i mean I, i'll be flying for like an hour and a half and not even realizing <laughs> yeah It it's
4: oh yeah oh that sounds great yeah, it's yeah it's yeah definitely i know one of my, my my good buddy Pete, he, he only flies the Oculus way, and so um, his his trouble then is he has to use the PDA, you know, that's in the the built-in glider. Yeah. Where I've actually got it, you know, it's really neat to kind of interact with um, an XC soar device that I have connected up to. Again, that's fantastic um, technology they built into Contour, where you can you can learn your device you know, a realistic way, not just, you know, because when I was trying to learn, I'll say that, you know, when I was first doing cross country, it's, it's overwhelming, you know, the amount of decisions and information that you process. And and I would hear the the old salts, you know, I call them, you know, the guys that have been doing it for years, just on the radio. Oh yeah. I just plugged in this next airport and I'm, you know, 2000 feet below and this and that. And I couldn't even barely keep track of just my home altitude, let alone trying to, modify my task midway and but you're right between flying condor with the the xc soar on my desktop there on my desk rather and getting to operate it that way and then doing it in the cockpit um it's it's really good practice for what is a pretty intense amount of decision making you know i this year i i got my instrument rating in an airplane and it is such a different style of flying where everything is very pre-planned and you're really kind of just executing a plan glider flying by comparison is just it's, it's so free form it's it's like you know jazz or, or painting or something by comparison to to flying you know from point to point in an instrument i mean maybe yeah uh, you've got some weather you know we had some build-ups we worked around one day or whatnot but I tell you, by comparison, gliding is uh, just—it really does exercise the mind.
2: Well, congratulations on your instrument rating.
4: Thank you. That was a long time coming. I remember, you know, twenty some odd years ago, I was—I was trying to make that go/no go decision on instrument, and I knew it wasn't right at that time. But but now, you know, I've got my kids are old enough where we're, we're wanting to go places and having the the ability to kind of punch through some light layers. We we recognize. A small single engine airplane is, is not going to be, you know, set your schedule months in advance and you're going to be able to make it like the airlines can almost do.
2: But it's nice that you're trained in it. Yeah.
4: Within reason, that instrument ticket does really open up some some more capability for these great little airplanes.
2: And get you out of a sticky situation that maybe normally you'd have a much tougher time getting out of.
4: Yeah. I mean, you're very much aware now of, of some dangers that, that are lurking out there, right? As a, as a private pilot, I wasn't ever thinking about icing or, or, you know, some of these other situations that can come up as you kind of push into the envelope of, you know, visibility or um, cloud clearances and uh, disorientation. And I'll tell you that I was doing my instrument flying and I thought, the foggles where you know when you're when you're training you wear view limiting devices and right you know you think you're ready for that first cloud encounter but uh, the the spatial disorientation hit me so fast as i was doing a final approach into a mountainous airport that you just had to tell yourself trust the instruments trust the instruments and you know i think as glider pilots we we get close to clouds probably a lot closer than i do to power airplanes still within the ranks but you know, there's times where, where there's maybe a WISP, it's not a full deck, but there's something that just just say, you know, res- definitely respect the clouds. And, and I, I respect the heck out of the stories I hear where in some countries it may have been or is still legal to fly in clouds. That That is a really remarkable talent to fly a slippery glider through a cloud if, if that's what they're able to do.
2: I always ask if you'd like to give a shout out before we wrap things up here.
4: Yeah, I, I absolutely do. Um, you, you know, you have heard me kind of, very excited about our club and and I think a lot of that enthusiasm and interest in our club has been a direct result of our club president uh, actually took the the massive step of purchasing the airport and I I should name him because our club president Eric Lambert he's a long time glider pilot from England and uh, has brought his enthusiasm to the states and has built our little club up from from I think just one or two people to now we're well over 50 members and um, the airport facility, uh, the guests that we have coming to join us and just the, the energy and enthusiasm around the club, I think is, is a big part of it. And as we all know, you know, soaring is it's one of those sports where it's, it's competing with a lot of other interests. So, you know, to have our club in a growth phase is a really exciting thing and, and I just want to really congratulate Eric for all that he's done. And he works tirelessly around the airport, you know, whether it's mowing grasses or fixing up the hangars and, um, you know, he'll help you position your airplanes. Or last time we got, there's seven aircraft in the hangar, you know, now that we only had four. So it's really, which was a nice thing because we had a guest come in and he didn't have to unrig. So it's, we're, we're all just enjoying this this newfound freedom where the club, uh, didn't used to be kind of you know stuck in trailers and, and kind of pushed off to the side now soaring is really the main focus of Merlin and, and all, all thanks to Eric's hard work and, and big investment
2: that is awesome it sounds like you got a lot of good things going on there keep up the good work
4: thank you yeah it's, it's definitely a great team a great great bunch of people we, we've got in the club
2: Chris thank you for coming on the podcast again I, it's, it's been a long time but it's so nice to talk to you again today
4: absolutely Chuck. I, I really enjoy all of your episodes uh it's such a great podcast really you know hearing all the different perspectives around the world is just it's such a great community it's a global community so so thankful for what you're doing to bring us all these interesting stories and so i just yeah encourage you to doing what you're doing
2: thank you i'm enjoying it and you guys have been great helping me out and we are a big community all over the world and it's, it's been amazing and it's been fun to, to be here to be able to do this and, and to have all the help that I've got.
4: I'm sure. It does sound like a lot
2: of fun. Take care, Chris.
4: Okay, Chuck. Have a good night.
2: And thank you for listening to another episode here on Soaring the Sky. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and happy soaring.
1: If you would like to say hi... Just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.